Good morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. We're continuing this incredible part of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. So let me just pray and get us going. Our great God, we just thank you so much for your word. We ask you to enlighten our minds and our hearts with glorious truths that Paul has to share with us today as part of this magnificent passage. We just ask for you to bless in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Last week we looked at the humiliation of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and we saw how the Lord of all creation emptied himself to become truly one of us, a human being, and live life as a man. That was not imposed upon him. He voluntarily forsook the majesty and the dignity and the glory of heaven to assume a true human nature, even including the whole birth process. I mean, going through the womb and doing that whole thing. He humbled himself to do the full human experience. He lived a working man's life for 30 years until he began his ministry. And that ministry itself ended up after three, three years, three and a half years or so, it ended up in an arrest, some quick and unjust trials, and finally death by crucifixion. Paul says at the end of verse eight here in Philippians, chapter 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus chose that path, and what motivated him was this incredible love that he has for lost human beings. His death, that incredibly horrible death, shamefully nailed to a cross in public, was the sacrifice that purchased the salvation of sinners like me and like you. Paul told us in verse 5 of chapter 2, he said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So he, though existing as God, emptied himself and actually became a slave. He lived to bless and serve other people. One aspect of Jesus' humility that we didn't talk about last week was Jesus' action on the night before his crucifixion at the Last Supper. So we all know that at the Last Supper he inaugurated the New Covenant there with the bread and the wine. We know there was extensive teaching and conversation. John has multiple chapters about that in his gospel, and we're going to go there to John chapter 13. But, you know, before all the profound conversation of that evening, Jesus did this thing. And it's John chapter 13, in the very first verse, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. That was the job 
of the lowliest household slave in those days. Jesus began the Last Supper by taking the lowliest place. So there's a lot here, but I want you to notice what Jesus knew before he took off his tunic and wrapped the towel about himself to wash dirty feet. There's, uh, there are many things that he is aware of. John is careful to point out to us. He knew his hour had come, so he knew what was about to happen to him. He knew he was leaving this world and going to the Father. He knew the Father had given all things into his hand. So, in other places, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. That's before the crucifixion and his exaltation. So, that's significant that he knew that. He knew he came from the Father, John says, and that he was returning to the Father. So, in other words, he was completely aware that the cross was not the end. It was a necessary part of the plan, but Jesus knew that exaltation lay beyond. So the Last Supper began with this act of incredibly lowly service, this slave service. But now I want you to go to the end of um, the Last Supper, to John chapter 17. So let's, let's all sort of turn there. And John blesses us by recording this prayer. This prayer of Jesus for his men, which closes out the meal. And I want you to look again at the very first verses of John chapter 17. It's about glory. Jesus spoke these things, so all the other stuff that had happened, uh, all the conversation before in the, the Last Supper, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. Now, Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Can you imagine being in the room and hearing him pray that prayer? Before the world was, before the created realm, Jesus shared glory with the Father. Now, that's interesting because did you know that God doesn't share his glory? Way back in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And of course, of course he doesn't give his glory to another. How could God give his glory to somebody else? Nobody can even begin to approach God's nature, his power, his sovereignty. So all that is glorious about him can't be shared. No one is his equal and in no way close to him in his essential nature. There's no creature that even begins to approach the creator and the infinite nature of God. So the question is, if the Lord, Yahweh, that's that Lord, all capital letters in the Old Testament, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, the creator God doesn't share his glory. If that's true, how can Jesus look forward to 
being glorified with the Father, with the glory they had together before the world was. Because, here's the answer, because God the Son is just as much God as God the Father. He's not in any way inferior. Remember, Paul said Jesus, before he became a man, existed in the form of God. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, where we've been. So, like I said, when you see the name Lord with all capital letters in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, all caps, that's God's sacred name. That's his name, and that's when he's referring to himself. That is not a name that belongs only to the Father. That is the name of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, you don't want to separate that out. So, Christ in the Incarnation, living as a man, looked to God as the Father, his God, he even calls him his God, but Christ is just as much God as the Father, and the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father. So one God in three persons, each person equally eternal, infinite, and glorious. One essence, eternal, infinite, indivisible, yet three distinct persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's an inescapable conclusion of what the Bible says about the Lord God, about Jesus Christ, and about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, God the Son, does not come to an end at the cross. He can't. Now, Paul is talking about humility, and he's talking about how we should be humble in Philippians chapter 2. So he's using that as that Jesus' incarnation, his emptying of himself as an example of humility, and going all the way being so committed to living as a slave and serving God's purpose that he was even willing to endure death on the cross. But God's plan was never to leave him in a state of humiliation. So Paul's not going to end his section in Philippians chapter 2 with Jesus dying on the cross. He's got to talk about his exaltation because that was God's plan. So even though his point is the humility of Christ, he's not going to move away from talking about the exaltation of Christ and his glory that he shared with the Father from before the foundation of the world and returning to that glory. So it's an essential part of the gospel to understand that Jesus is exalted and he's reigning today. You know, I was thinking the very first gospel sermon, which is the one Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that is not limited to the death of Christ at all. In fact, Peter's sermon at Pentecost is primarily about the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ because that's the good news he delivered in Jerusalem. I want to share that with you too. You can follow me at Acts chapter 2 verse 39 or, or 29 and just listen. Acts 2 29. So here's Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In verse 30, And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. 
for it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So, you know, Peter never really gets into the substitutionary nature of the sacrifice of Christ for sin. And, and it was that, that his death for sin was a substitutionary sacrifice, but that's not where he goes with this sermon. The focus of his sermon is on the, the victory of Christ over death and his exaltation as Lord and Christ in heaven. So he lives, and he not only lives, but he has all the glory and majesty that he had before, with the addition of being the chosen Savior King of humanity as a man himself. So you see, something was actually added. Christ will always be the risen Savior, possessed of a resurrected, glorified body as the Messiah, the promised King of planet Earth, where the place where all these marvelous creatures like us fell into great sin. People made in the image of God turned away from God and wandered away from God, and he underwent this great ministry to redeem us, to bring us back to God. And he redeemed millions of people. So as God in heaven, Jesus is omnipresent, he is everywhere, but also as the risen Christ, he is still in a body, he's still our human priest and king with this glorified human body, the scars are still there. He's no longer in a state of humiliation, though. All of that, all that stuff he gave up, he has reclaimed his sovereignty, his omniscience, his omnipotence. He's not empty anymore. And all that he has set aside to do this great work on our behalf, he's picked it up again. It belongs to him again. So he has no limits. He's still a resurrected man, but he is God eternally, indivisibly, all-powerful, all-knowing. So that is a new glory added to his honors, this humanity, if it is appropriate to say it like that. He, his honors as the king of all the earth, as the king of all mankind, as the redeemer of sinners. So as the center of redemptive history, he will always be our human king and savior, as well as the eternal God. Remember uh, what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says? It says, God saved us so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, by his humiliation, magnifies, demonstrates, puts a spotlight on the riches of God's grace in kindness towards us in Christ, towards sinful people like us. It's a most amazing reality of which we will forever be the living proof of God's gracious kindness towards wicked people. Forever will be that. We'll be the trophies of God's grace for eternity. I'm looking forward to that. I want to tell my story. He saved me. You know, I love history. 
And the human story to me is endlessly fascinating, just amazing. But what God has done in human history by entering human history is the great story of history. And in the end, that's the only thing that matters, what he did. Because that's the thing that will bring us to eternal glory in heaven with the Father and with the Son. The redemption of sinners by God's grace in the humiliation of the Son. That's the story of the world. That's, the, that's history. That's the most important thing about human history. So Paul, back in Philippians chapter 2 now, he just can't stop with the humiliation of Jesus. So he follows it with this. So we're picking it up at verse 9 of uh, Philippians 2. We stopped at verse 8 last week. He says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this passage has been an incredible comfort for believers all down through the ages because it so plainly articulates both Jesus' divinity and his ultimate victory and his power. And God's purpose is that his son be honored above all. So that is our purpose, to honor him. So now I'm going to talk about theology for a moment. So put your theology hats on. What does this elevation of the name of Jesus Paul talks about here, what does that mean? What is that, what's the purpose of that? What do we learn from that? Well, one thing this whole passage is making absolutely clear is that the person of Jesus is not in any way distinct from his identity as the Christ. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, well, who would think they were different? Well, many people. Um, there are cults and theological systems that teach that the Christ is something different than the person of Jesus. It's common among cults, especially in, in our time, sort of the New Age type cults, to believe that everybody's divine. Everybody's divine. And they like to claim Jesus because everybody wants Jesus to support what they say. So they would say the, the eternal Christ, this sort of cosmic law or this infinite spirit, that it came upon this man, Jesus, or he discovered it, or he, he realized it, or something like that. And he had it in abundance, or, or he, he tapped into it uh, more successfully than other people have. And their point is that we can do that too. We can be divine too. We recognize this divinity that's part of us all. And so Jesus is just the best example of that. So he was a man, and this cosmic spirit of Christ, he somehow connected with that and uh, used it, it became part of him, or something like that. It settled on him, or he discovered its secrets, and was in touch with this eternal principle. So we can do that too. That's what they teach. So to these folks, Jesus is basically a Jedi Knight who learned how to use the Force really well, because the Force is something separate from him. It's not who he actually is. That is wrong. That is a great heresy, a great uh, calumny to say that Christ Jesus, or Christ and Jesus are separate things. Uh, so, But it's a common doctrine amongst people that want to say that they're God too. But Paul will not allow that perverse kind of notion. He absolutely refutes it in Philippians chapter 2 as well as in other places, but the rest of the New Testament will refute that as well. But Notice in our text, Philippians 2, 
back up in verse 5, who humbled himself? Was it the cosmic Christ? Well, he uses the name Jesus, Christ Jesus. Christ is just the title. That means Messiah. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the name of a person. So the person who emptied himself, that's Jesus, the person. So he's already who he was, right? He's a... Uh, Christ is the title, Jesus is the name. It's the name of an individual. And that individual is the one who emptied himself to take on humanity. It was the person, Jesus, who as God humbled himself to take on a human nature. So that person, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, emptied himself, Paul says, and humbled himself. Those are the two verbs he uses in Philippians 2. He humbled himself to die on a cross. So Jesus existed in the form of God and became a man. Jesus existed in the form of God and became a man, Paul says. He did not realize his divinity by some process of human discovery. He was God. And as God, he took action based on his choice to become human and die for the sins of the world. That's why in today's text, verses 9 through 11, he's presented in such a unique way. He's beyond comparison. There's no one that has a name like his. It's above all other names. So Jesus, that same person, is given a name which is above every name. Every name. Yours, mine, so-and-so uh, so, so, -and -so guru, whoever, uh, above their name, above all names. No creature can compare. He is the creator and the redeemer. True God and true man. And at his name, not the name of some ethereal, impersonal Christ, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the person who existed in relation to the Father in all eternity is the same person that we know as Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was carried to Egypt as a baby by his parents. And then they came back and he grew up in Nazareth as a working man. And now he's the risen and exalted king, the same person through the whole process. He is the person before whom we will all bow our knees, bend our knees to him someday, either in worship as his child or in terror as a rebel facing a holy and righteous and powerful king. But we will all bend the knee. We will all bow. And it's important to remember that the exalted Jesus Christ who sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father today and who will return in great power and glory is the same person who loved the sinner while he sojourned on earth. The exalted Christ is the same man who was continually moved with compassion, who served other people, who laid down his life in the most sacrificial way. He's the same person. That's why we know he is still a wonderful and compassionate Savior. The exalted Christ is the same person who in humble humanity said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in that humble state, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, in that state, when he was a man, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Colossians 2, 8. So the man Jesus was God on earth, God 
cloaked, if you will, in humanity, but truly and fully God in human flesh. So you cannot separate Christ from the man, Jesus. They are one and the same. Those who do that are deluding themselves. So they can tell themselves that they can be like God, that one day they will be some kind of exalted person, but they won't be. They will be bowing before Jesus. They will bend the knee to Jesus. They will confess Jesus as Lord. Whether they do it happily or not is up to them, but they will do it. Okay then, let's try to grasp from Philippians 2 then this, this complete authority that the exalted Jesus is given over all rational creatures, whatever they are and wherever they are. So verse 10, it says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So whenever you see so that, that's a purpose clause. So it's the purpose that God gave him the name above every name. Why did God give him the name above every name? So that to Jesus every knee will, will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Notice he says every knee and every tongue. So that language includes everyone. And I think we're seeing here it everyone includes not just human beings, but all rational creatures that God made. So, you know, we live in the midst of this great rebellion against God. We live in it. We literally live in enemy-occupied territory. And that is the great characteristic of our age, the time we live in. Ever since man fell, that's been true. And that's why there is so much evil in the world, because the hearts of men are corrupt and in rebellion against a holy and righteous God. And Jesus is so wonderful, you would think he would be adored by everyone. I mean, what's not to like about him? He washed people's feet. He was so humble. He told the truth always. He helped people. He healed people. He spoke truth to people. You would think he would be adored by everyone, but he isn't. In fact, Jesus is quite hated. Bring him up at a dinner party full of just regular folks and see how they react to his name. People use his name as a curse word. Many people do that. Now some people do love the Jesus, uh, a kind of Jesus that they invent in their own mind. They like the idea that he was a good man and humble and all of that. But they don't like the Jesus we see in the Gospels. In fact, when you start sharing with them the Jesus of the Bible and what he actually said, people hate that. They hate it. Men hate the Sermon on the Mount. Now, they like the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. They hear little bits of it and a couple phrases from it. Oh, hey, that sounds good. But if you read the whole thing, people don't like that because it condemns us. It shows that we are in rebellion, that we are against God. And so when people read the real Sermon on the Mount, they... They turn against Jesus, the real Jesus. But he is coming, and he's coming to end rebellion against him. He's coming to crush sin and establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness. So there's going to be a reckoning. And the language that Paul uses here is very comprehensive, and Paul means it to be. Paul speaks of everyone in heaven, everyone on earth, and everyone under the earth. So heaven, of course, is the angelic sphere where they live, the, their realm, and that's also where the saints live who have died in Christ 
and have gladly acknowledged Jesus as Lord in their life. Earth is all mankind now living. How many people are there? Eight or nine billion people on the earth? They will all, everyone on earth today, will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. And under the earth, so Paul chooses a word that's only used here in the New Testament. Usually the word for people in, you know, down below in the spirit realm that are awaiting judgment, he uses the word Hades, but he doesn't use that word here. Um, he uses a word that in, in Greek culture, in their mythology, they describe the underworld. That's where people go when they die. So Paul's using it the same way, where the dead are, the abode of the dead. So Hades is the more commonly word used in the New Testament. It's where the spirits of the unrighteous go to await final judgment. But I think Paul is using this word because he wants to inc include every being that's part of that underworld. So that would include fallen angels as well, demonic powers and things like that. So um, it's the opposite of heaven where angels, holy angels and the redeemed people live. So the underworld is the opposite. It's where um, unredeemed people go and where demonic powers dwell. So it's the spiritual realm of those who reject and oppose the rule of King Jesus, but they too will bow the knee and confess with their mouths Jesus as Lord. You know, there's not going to be any displays of defiance when people stand before Christ. There's not going to be any swaggering. There's not going to be any sneering. <coughs> Whatever the wicked plan to say, if Christianity turns out to be true, it's not going to come out. They won't be able to say it. They're going to be so full of fear. Their body will be trembling with such terror. It'll be a nightmare to them that it's all really true. Whatever the wicked plan to say, they won't say. It won't even be in their minds to say it. No tiny creature can stand before God when God says, kneel. They will kneel and they will tremble. And we can see what it will be like because you can look in the Gospels and see how demons react to Jesus um, when he's present. Even cloaked, even not in glory, but just his person, knowing who he is. How craven they are, how weak they are, how pathetic they are, begging and pleading and humbling themselves before him. That's how it will be for all proud men and women who disdain him or ignore him or reject him him now. They will tremble. They may hate him, but they're not going to have any choice because they won't have any power to resist bowing before him, bending the knee, accepting his authority, recognizing his lordship. They won't be able to. They will be so shaken and so undone by his presence, they're going to kneel and they're going to confess that he is Lord. Look at Paul's language in verse 10 and 11. Every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, kind of try to put yourself back in the first century, and you're at Philippi Bible Church, and this letter comes, and they're reading it in church, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And if you knew your Old Testament, now you might be a Gentile that read the Old Testament a lot, or you might be a Jew who was raised in the Old Testament, but if you were familiar with it, these words of Paul would sound very familiar. Every knee 
will bow, every tongue will confess. That sounds, that sounds like Isaiah. It sounds like Isaiah chapter 45. Why don't we all turn to Isaiah chapter 45? Why don't you turn there with me? Isaiah's in the Old Testament. It's before Jeremiah. It's after the Psalms. This whole section of Isaiah is amazing, but um, this part is very significant. Now, you know what's amazing to me is that there are human beings who say they believe the Bible. I mean the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, word for word, but they deny the divinity of Christ. They say he couldn't be God. There are people that knock on your door with little magazines that believe that. They still knock on my door. I always love them and welcome them in. But it could not be clear that Paul, of course, he's already said in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ existed in the form of God and was equal with God. He actually used that word equal. And now by using these words, he is saying that Jesus, whose name is above every name, is in fact the Lord, God, Yahweh, Jehovah of the Old Testament. He is him. So in Isaiah 45, and don't forget that it's here. You should mark this in your Bible because when those people come knocking on your door, you should know this, this passage. And we don't have time for a lot of detail, but it's very clear and very plain. The Lord is speaking. Yahweh, you'll see all capital L-O-R-D. And of course, because he's God, he says there is none like him. And he reminds Israel that only he knows the future. So we're going to pick it up at verse 18. So Isaiah 45, verse 18. Are you there? Okay, good. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens... He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. And now he speaks. I am the Lord. There is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Then verse 20. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare, your, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. So no other gods exist. He says, I am the only God. He is a righteous God and a savior. There is no other God or savior. So now let's keep going. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. My word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. Do you catch it? I am God. There is no other. To me, every knee 
will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. So who's talking? Who's talking here? Who's the only one? Well, it's the Lord, all caps, Jehovah God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That is who is speaking, the one and only God. And he says to him, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And Paul takes those words, the words of Yahweh, that he applies only to himself, absolutely only to himself, declaring that there is no other, and Paul uses those same words and the same concept that applies only to God and applies them directly and explicitly to Jesus. So folks, if the Old Testament and the New Testament are both true, if they're both inspired scripture, then the only way these scriptures, Isaiah 45 and Philippians chapter 2, can be harmonized is if Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord. These words apply to both the Father and the Son and are exclusive to each. They must be one. They must be one. Jesus has to be Yahweh. So again, the name of Lord in the Old Testament is not just the name of the Father, it's the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But like we said, Jesus is also an exalted man. Because of what he accomplished in his suffering for sin and to redeem mankind, his name will be the one that's above every other name. It's that special work that he did that raises his name so high. But clearly from this text, Jesus is Yahweh. He is him as much as the Father is him. So if people come and say that Jesus is a little God or a created being or something like that, I read this to them. I compare the two passages. Or others, there's others that here in Isaiah you can do the same thing with with other New Testament passages. And I just say, Kindly and gently, I said, there is no other way for me to understand these words than to conclude. It's totally rational to conclude that if the Bible is true, Jesus is Jehovah. He is God. He is fully God. He is the God that's speaking here. He's the creator of all things. And that's him. And I said, how can I not believe that based on this scripture? Because it's so clear. And I just leave it there. So, he is the exalted one. God gave him this name. As verse 11 says, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To confess or to agree that Jesus is Lord will one day be a universal opinion. Everybody's going to believe that because it will be an undeniable fact. But only for some. Only some will acknowledge that fact with joy. I'm going to be one of those people. For others, it will be the stuff of nightmares, that God is holy, that they are guilty, that God offered them a perfect Savior, and they rejected him. So both reactions will bring glory to God because he is glorified in the condemnation of rebels just as he is glorified in the salvation of rebels who become his children. God's love and justice both shine brightly in the way he has ordained things. James Smith, who was a pastor many, many years ago, he said this, 
All are accountable to Jesus. He will judge angels. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To him, every intelligent and responsible creature must render his account. He has a right to rule us by his laws and to bind us by his decisions. Thanks be unto God, all his laws are righteous and all his decisions are just. He rules in heaven, on earth, and in hell. His will is the law of the universe. To him, every knee must bow, and to him, every tongue must confess and acknowledge him to be Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then he brings it down and he applies it to you and me. If Jesus is Lord of all, we must glorify him, either passively or actively. We may refuse to yield to him, but we must bend or break. He will get glory from all he has created and by all he has made. The best way to glorify him is to admit his claims, bow to his authority, accept his invitation, and come to him as poor sinners to be saved by his merit and mercy. Never is Jesus so pleased with us or so glorified by us as when we come just as we are, lost, ruined, and condemned to be saved alone by his grace. In this way, we honor his mercy, we gratify his love, and glorify his grace. But if we do not so, we must experience his wrath, pay the penalty of disobedience, and glorify his holy justice. People, there's no question, there's no choice about whether we will bend the knee or not. We will. There's only a choice for us about how we're going to do that. If you are unwilling, you really need to ask yourself, why? Why am I unwilling to bend the knee to Jesus? Such a perfect person, the, the sum of all good things, resurrected, exalted, living today, speaking truth to us all the time. I see nothing lacking in Jesus that I want. Nothing. I find it hard to imagine a world without him. And there are parts of the world without him who don't know him. But I can't imagine life without him. He is worthy in every way of your faith, your love, your homage, and your acknowledgement that he is Lord. So do that. Consider why you are resisting. And let that go. You need to surrender to him. You cannot be Lord of your life and Jesus be Lord of your life. You can't have both those things. You have to surrender. Your lordship is actually an illusion. You are weak and wicked. His lordship is certain and verified by the resurrection. There is no more, more kind, more compassionate, more merciful Lord than he is for those who lay down their claims to lordship and surrender to him. So do it, just bend the knee, confess from your heart that he is Lord 
and give yourself to him. He is Lord. There is no happy alternative to that. Let's pray. Oh God, how good you are to us to give us such a worthy Savior. It's not hard to love him if we surrender to his mercy and grace. He is the king who washed men's dirty feet. Could you have given us anyone better? With you, Father, we exalt the name of Jesus, the perfect man, the infinite God, and our coming king. And now let his praise leave our lips as we confess him as Lord. We ask in his name. We always pray in his name. Amen. Seek Christ. He's everything. And if you need more knowledge and you want more guidance about that, call us, text me. I will meet with you. Mask and everything. Whatever we want to do, we'll get together and talk more about Jesus. God bless you. We'll see you next time.